as mentioned previously, we have the lovely and talented Tom Philpot here. He's a food and ag blogger for Mother Jones and the co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in North Carolina. He was formerly a columnist and editor for the online environmental site Grist, and his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian. (coughs) Uh, Twilight Greenway's articles about food and farming have appeared in The New York Times, The Bay Citizen, Smithsonian.com, Civil Eats, Take Part, Edible San Francisco, and on Grist, where she served as the food editor from 2011 to 2012. She spent three years working for the Center for Urban Education about Sustainable Agriculture, which is the nonprofit that runs the Ferry Plaza Farmers Market. She's also an avid forager, home cook, and gardener. And last but not least, Jason Mark, whose writings on food and the environment have appeared in The Chronicle, The Nation, The Progressive, Gastronomica, Orion, and Earth Island Journal, where he serves as editor. When not writing, you can always find Jason with his hands in the dirt at Alamany Farm, where he has been co-manager since 2005. I'm going to have each of our panelists talk a little bit more about who they are and what food issue is currently occupying their time, and we will go from there. And let's start with you, Jason. Thanks so much, everyone. Allison and Eli and all the folks at Spur and Mother Jones for organizing this, and thank you guys all for coming out tonight to to listen. Um, yeah, as Allison said, so I split my time between sort of being a, a gentleman farmer um, at Alamany Farm, which is a little three and a half acre organic fruit and vegetable uh, garden and orchard here in San Francisco. Check us out. Come out to one of our regular work days. Um, you can find us at alamanyfarm.org or on the backside of Bernal Hill, right against uh, the 280 freeway there. Um, what am I excited about? Well, one thing I, I actually, and, and I'll, I guess later in the discussion, we might see how this connects to, to food and farming. I had the chance to go this weekend to Washington, D.C. to cover the uh, Forward on Climate Rally. Um, some 40,000, 50,000 people gathered in Washington, D.C. for the largest uh, um, rally on climate change in the U.S. to date. Um, and there's any number of ways that connects to farming um, and agriculture, the most obvious one being the way it's going to impact our, our food supply. And I think that's and I think we'll talk about this later, one of the, the things that's sort of under the radar um, and in some coverage is, is really not getting the attention it deserves because the effects of, of climate change are just going to have a major impact on our ability to feed ourselves in this country and certainly our ability to feed uh, a planet of 7 to 9 billion people. Um, and I also think, and I know this is something we'll probably also be talking about later, I think some of the challenges that people who've dedicated themselves to addressing climate change, climate justice activists face m- many of the same hurdles that sustainable food activists do in terms of a wealthy, entrenched uh, industrial opposition that has got, you know, is not going to just fade away uh, gently into the night, um, and a, a challenge with getting policymakers, both in Washington and often at the state level, to really get focused about all of the solutions that are you know, off the shelf and shovel ready that, that we could be doing, whether, you know, again, that means uh, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions or creating a more sustainable and just food system, the solutions are out there. But again, both these movements, the climate justice movement and the food justice movement, um, are facing uh, a real hurdle in, in overcoming that political opposition. So I was thinking, even though it was all about climate and energy and it was in Washington, D.C., I was thinking a lot about the food movement um, when I was freezing my ass off on the mall on Sunday. Yeah, um, so I'm Tom Philpott. Um, 
and kind of like Jason, who I've been seeing as a role model um, since I started writing about this stuff in 2006, I've kind of mostly for the past six or seven years been divided between uh, food writing and writing about sort of food politics and also farming. Um, recently, I've moved the, the farm that I helped found it continues to run, but I've had to move to Austin for family reasons. But, um, but it's really a great and fun combination when you can have both of those, those things. And, uh, and I think that background, sort of uh, living on a farm and spending some time, you know, trying to tease a living off the land um, has got me kind of obsessed with this topic that I've been thinking a lot about, that I think I'll be writing about uh, in, the, in, the, in the next couple of years a lot. And that is um, the kind of material basis for soil fertility, um, you know, that scientists basically isolated the you know, basic building blocks of plants, sort of essential plant foods, um, N, P, and K. And probably most people know, I mean, nit nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And the way that uh, for most of the last, you know, for most of the whole history of farming, except for in, you know, isolated ecological niches, the whole game of farming was recycling those, those nutrients. And people didn't really, I mean, uh, until the 19th century, People hadn't really identified what they were, or or how or how they were how they cycled, but people sort of figured just sort of figured out on the ground how to do it. And in the 19th century, um, uh, scientists in Liebig figured, you know, essentially to make a long story very short, figured out N, P, and K, and the race was immediately on, especially as the Industrial Revolution was going on. Um, how can we? Um, how can we get break this recycling, um, break our dependence on recycling, and figure out how to isolate these things and add them to farming systems? And um, you know, the uh, the first incident incident of being <coughs> being able to do that was Chilean was uh, basically guano from South America, and that takes us through this whole long story that leads us into the synthes synthesizing nitrogen, um, which is an extremely energy intensive, and I think this is one of the the really major food and energy intersections, food and climate intersections, is that synthesizing nitrogen for agriculture is an extremely energy-intensive process. Um, and then, the, you know, the, the other of the other two, the problematic one is phosphorus. Um, phosphorus is uh, phosphate comes from phosphate rock. Is how we get it. It's, it's an extremely concentrated resource. Eighty-eight percent of it. Um, I have a column coming out in Mother Jones. Whenever it's published, it's in the next couple of days, right? It's going to be on the street. 88% um, of nitrogen, of uh, I'm sorry, of uh, phosphate rock reserves are in one country, which is Morocco. And it's not just in any place in Morocco, but it's in disputed territory called Western Morocco, oh, uh, Western Sahara in Morocco. And uh, it gives that country the biggest geologic, biggest uh, economic. Uh, monopoly, maybe in the history of, of, uh, of humanity, and uh, and so, and you don't hear sort of USDA officials or USDA USDA reports focusing on these problems, and I think that they um, they basically call into question fundamentally the sustainability of industrial agriculture, and at, at the same time they're super <coughs> undiscussed, little covered, and that, so that's these are the reasons why. That story is something that I, I predict will be consuming me. Although stories come at me all the time, and I can't resist them, and I go off in different directions. So we'll see how that goes. 
Hi. So I don't think it's an accident that all three of us have farming in our life. I don't farm currently. I do a little backyard gardening, but I was raised on an organic farm, and I also spend a fair amount of time obsessing about that cycle because I've seen it firsthand, and I'm interested in it as well and sort of how we've moved in what we perceive as this seems like it's a one-way direction where we need to be thinking about it as a cycle. So I'm with Tom on that. Um, I, as Allison said, I spent, I just spent a year and a half working for a website called Grist. I wrote a lot of, uh, for me, really fun and exciting <laughs> articles because it was great for me to have that platform. And I, I kind of ran with whatever came my way in a similar way that Tom does. Um, but right now I'm actually, in this moment, I'm working for, I'm doing some consulting for a new magazine that's launching called Modern Farmer. And it's, um, it's causing me to think a lot about the way that this, people who are in this room and people who are in this world that I've been in for a while, which is, you know, pretty nerdy, interested in this stuff, eating local food, how are we going to scale this up and reach a wider audience? And there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of potential compromises we're going to make um, in terms of food production as well as messaging around that food production. So that's one thing that I'm obsessing about right now. You know, how does, how does CSA scale up? Does it really scale up? Or are there just companies telling us that it can scale up? Or, um, you know, how do we really scale up grass-fed meat production? Or a number of these kinds of big questions are on my mind right now. So where to begin? <laughs> there's, there's a lot here. Um, I wanted to follow up on your question a little bit. I um, worked with a group called My Farm that some of you may be familiar with many, many years ago uh, and had one of their first backyard farms, and the idea was to do an urban CSA. The whole thing completely fell apart despite the best of intentions. And I think that was a really instructive lesson that hope and even skill and good intentions are not enough to get a business off the ground, especially one as sort of competitive and rapid as and subject to the vagaries of, of weather and, and a million other things. Um, what was super valuable about that and something that you were all well aware of having been so involved in farming and that I be became increasingly aware of since we started doing that at our house as well is how fragile and delicate it all is and how disconnected everyone else has not everyone else, I shouldn't use that language, how most people aren't aware of the fact that you pick something from the backyard, and even if you leave it on the back steps, it's not as fresh as it was as if you just brought it in, and, and, and how growing something in your own yard can teach you about supply chain and the fragility of, of everything. And I know that a lot of people in this room are probably working on that, of getting people sort of more closer to their food, but as you said, Twilight, it still seems that there's such an enormous chasm, one that, frankly, I haven't seen that big of a shift say in the last five to ten years when this became sort of more of a media trend, shall we say. And I'll ask each of you to answer, and Twilight, we can start with you and we can go back this way. Does it feel like you're sort of pushing the rock up the hill or do you feel like meaningful change is, is occurring in the areas that you're kind of obsessing over? I mean, Michelle Obama does Let's Move, but then Beyonce does a soda commercial. It just seems like there's always something to slap down any, any advance. And I just wondered if you how you felt about that. 
<laughs> Sorry. On a good day, question. I say absolutely. Um, on a less good day, I say that um, the the impression that we can just vote with our fork and that we can make a bunch of great individual decisions, um, you know, that that will only get us so far and that without without policymakers who are really familiar with the nitrogen cycle <laughs> and who understand how many CAFOs there are out there and who get that the, um, you know, that commodity farming is problematic in a number of ways and who... Um, who understand what a food desert is without policymakers who are integrating those kinds of information into their decision making? I don't think that in, that individual choices can really get us very far. Um, I think that they're obvious that the two go hand in hand. Maybe that's too simplistic of an answer. No, that's but. okay. There's no easy answer, but I'm just interested to get your impressions. And um, for for me, I mean, I agree with with all of that and. Um, and I think one thing that it's really important for, for us writing about this and us thinking about these issues, um, especially in a, in a place like the Bay Area, is to always, rem, you know, just to really kind of focus on the fact that it's very easy for us to get into a bubble where uh, we think that, us, you know, it's easy to think uh, coming from, you know, I've been living in Austin or living in a place like San Francisco or, you know, Brooklyn or, or a place like that, and we've sort of got the fundamentals of the, of the food system problem solved. We've got these great alternative food networks built out. We can go to the farmer's market and see these very successful seeming on the outside. I think the fragility of the farmers in those markets, the actual farmers in those markets, is you know, not something that they're trying to put forward, but um, it, you know, it's an extremely fragile um, and vulnerable um, scene. But it's easy, to, it's easy to, you know, to think that we've got these big issues solved when, you know, something like there aren't really good numbers, but four or five, maybe six percent of the food that's consumed in this country can be said to have been grown under uh, decent labor conditions, uh, ecological conditions, conditions that were um, fair to animals. Um, and what we've created to this point after you know, 30, 40, you know, however, however, wherever you want to put the starting point um, of, this, of this movement, we've created this really great and thriving niche. But um, I don't think that, um, and so we've created this, this thing where we've got this beautiful niche happening and the, the overall system continues to, to uh, sort of lurch toward these ecological crises, crises, public health crises. And so I think that... Um, there is definitely big progress being made, but we have to remember that the whole game is, can we expand access, can we expand, um, can we expand opportunity within, within, within food? Um, the food economies are, uh, are sort of uh, fundamentally extractive. If you go into a, a low-income community um, like West Oakland or the South Bronx or places like that, People are spending money on food. People, people, wealth is being created by food, even in the poorest communities, but is leaking out of those communities. Can we figure out ways of, of trapping that wealth within communities through local institutions? And I think the, that um, on the hope side of things, I think that those kinds of programs are, are happening uh, on the ground 
all across the country. It's not just a coastal phenomenon. It's happening in places like Detroit. It's happening in places like south side, of, south side or west side of Chicago, um, you know, Cleveland, to speak nothing of the South Bronx and West Oakland, which are, these kinds of projects are also bubbling up. The, the problems are not solved, but efforts, efforts are being made. And, you know, I think that, you know, staying away from self-satisfaction and this idea that everything's fine in our bubble, um, I think it, those are, I think, paramount to the movement. <coughs> well, well, speaking of the, the bubble, um, I guess when I'm at Alamany Farm, I'm feeling a lot of optimism, right? Because we're, we're like clearly surfing on this wave of all this cultural currency, right? Where people are very excited about where their food comes from and there's tons of volunteers coming out. We're having to turn away field trips because there's more demand for them than, than, than we can fulfill. Um, and that's really exciting. And, and, and those are the days when I'm optimistic. And then I talk to my many friends who are younger farmers um, and listen to what a incredibly, as, as Tom was saying, how very fragile their enterprises are. Um, and that's really discouraging. Like my very good friends who run a pasture-raised poultry um, and pasture-raised hog operation in the foothills called Dinner Bell Farm. Um, I think Twilight uh, assigned somebody to do a, a really great profile of them on Gris last year. And um, hmm? look it up. Yeah, look it up. Um, Google Dinner Bell Farm. And they are selling to some of the best restaurants in San Francisco. You eat their chickens at Slanted Door. You eat their pork at Bar Agricole or at Pizzaiolo in Oakland. Um, they're at Buy Right Market and they're at Avendano's. And yet they are barely paying themselves minimum wage. Um, and they, so, that, so they're feeding the swells right and they can't barely feed themselves this cultural currency isn't really translating into real hard currency for them um and the same thing is like my friends at fifth crow farm in pescadero they sell it at the, at the you know palo alto farmers market so these are you know their clientele are hmm? soul food farm which just yeah closed. soul food farm also you know closed um they were pasture raised poultry um and, you know, selling to folks at the Palo Alto Farmer's Market who are Google and Apple executives and someone is nickel and diming them about how much a bunch of chard costs. Um, and, again, they are barely paying themselves, you know, a minimum wage and their clientele are all earning, you know, gobs of money. And that, that's discouraging and that, that's hard. And it's really it's kind of hard to see what is the... Like, what's the sweet spot for, for scale for the sustainable food movement, right? Um, you know, if you're too small, it's hard to make a living. If you're too big, then you've kind of become what you were trying to avoid, right? Um, and so what's the middle ground where you can make a dignified living for you and your family, um, and yet you're still at the scale where you're ecologically sustainable? And um, I think there's some farms who figured that out, um, but most people are still struggling with it, and until more people are, are able to find that sweet spot and they're going to have a hard time getting beyond, you know, what, what Tom and Twilight were talking about, how we're just really still um, little more than a rounding error on the whole, on the whole national food economy. Quickly, I w the farms that have figured out ways to do that get a lot of community support. They ask for community support, and I think that's a huge piece of it is right. the... Um, there is something else going on, aside from just the farming. And they opened, like, Full Belly Farm, I think would be a good example of somebody who's successful here in the Bay Area, <coughs> and they essentially, for their hose down every year, I mean, they open their farm to the Bay Area, and, you know, thousands, if not more, people go up there for their hose down, and, and that, I think, it, it kind of, you know, pays itself forward. 
Let's talk about scale, and I'm just going to throw it out there because you you talk about a middle ground, but then what do you think, say, of a Walmart stepping in into this <laughs> space? Is that a good idea, a bad idea? Is there any positive aspect of of a big company like that jumping into this space in terms of getting some something to scale, or not at all? I, I think in, in at the end of the day, it's a good thing. Um, it's more or less a good thing. I think it's, it's more of a good thing than it is a bad thing that Walmart, let me rephrase that. I, I think it's, it's not a horrible thing. That Walmart's like the number, is, is the number one seller of organic milk in this country, is the number one seller of- Of groceries. Uh, yeah, of organic groceries. Of just I, any groceries. If you live in many parts of this country, that's gonna be the only place where you're gonna be able to get organic milk, right? If you live in North Dakota, um, Walmart's gonna be pretty much the only place where you're gonna find a lot of those products. Um, and I do think that's part of the process whereby something goes from an underground phenomenon to, you know, a kind of media darling to um, then just kind of the way we live our lives. So I think it's part of the transition um, in which something kind of goes mainstream. At the same time, uh, that's, that's not the solution the other day. I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of tactically ecumenical. Right? We need all sorts of different mm-hmm. things to happen. Um, and just as we want our farms to have thriving, diverse ecosystems and to be polycultures, I think the food system is going to be a little bit of a polyculture. I don't, you know, I get 85% of my fruits and vegetables from Alameda Farm, but I also go to the farmer's market. I go to Whole Foods sometimes. I go to, you know, Berkeley Bowl. I, you know, I don't buy all my food at one place, and nor do most of me. I bet nobody in this room buys all their food at one single place. Um, so in a way, I think it's okay. To, it, it's fine to have these different market players in there. Um, that's kind of the diversity we need. I've actually moved in the other direction recently where I feel like no company should have that much control over the food system. I, I mean, that. it was sure. for a while I was hearing it was 30%. Now I'm hearing it's maybe as much as 50 And I feel like there's no one company that should should have that much control no matter what. I, I understand the, the value of, of access to organic food, absolutely, but I think that there being one is the problem. And I did a story on Walmart a while back in, on this exact, this exact question, and, and specifically on the movement of local food, mm-hmm. which is kind of a funny concept. And, um, and, and I found that like, I don't think they're an actively necessarily bad player in, in in that in that market, like they don't, they're not doing very much active damage because most people who it isn't like they're undercutting farmers' markets because people aren't going to Walmart for local food. If you want local food, you go to the farmers' market. You don't, you don't go to Walmart, and they're playing with the definition. And they're um, you know like basically anything grown in California is local in California. Anything grown in Texas is local in Texas. You know these vast states. Um, and um, if you look at the, the numbers on their local food sales, they're the biggest seller. of. I mean, when you control, you know, between 25 and 50 percent of the market uh, in groceries, and you're the biggest player in everything, whether it's organic milk, and they're the biggest local food seller. But and when you look at the numbers, a lot of that is just sales in California of fruit grown in California. Well, 80 percent, you know, of so many, 80 percent plus of so many crops are grown in California. So de facto right there you're going to be the biggest player and I got you know I talked to them and I got information on you know give me some examples of farmers that you're working with and the farmers that they gave me are were invariably very large operations that you know happen to be operating in Arkansas and selling food in Arkansas Walmarts but um, 
but nothing really groundbreaking. And um, you know, as a you know, our farm is in an area that has a Walmart, and that Walmart has food. And um, it isn't like their more or less fake foray into selling local food has has really had any effect on us at all. I mean, they might they might sort of put downward pressure on, on prices in general, but it has nothing to do with their with their local push. And I think I think Twilight's exactly right. A way bigger question than is it a good thing or a bad thing is uh, consolidation of the food system, which I think is a, 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 a generally undercovered story through no fault of mine, because I've obsessed about it for, for years. And I run a lot of stuff on it, but consolidation of the food system is massive and it really is driving a lot of the stuff that Jason's talking about, because a lot of the, a lot of the problems faced by small farms is that the the foods we are starting small farms we are sort of trying to revive the small farm economy in a situation where our installed base of infrastructure in this country is built for these gigantic mega farms and built for moving you know millions of pounds of pork from a facility in North Carolina into the Walmart supply chain that's what the infrastructure is built for and the infrastructure for these farms doesn't exist and they, they, they literally shut it down. These companies, as they gobble each other up, they shut down the infrastructure so it gets more and more concentrated. And so we're, it's not a level playing field. And I always want to make the point that the federal government oversaw the consolidation. They didn't enforce antitrust laws. They subsidized it in various different ways. And the only policy solution is federal policy. And, you know, that's... That's really easy to say, but it's not happening anytime soon without some kind of uh, revolution or something. But, uh, <laughs> right, I mean, that's where we are. It's, and, and I'm in no way a, a defender of Walmart. Just, I think that the, the food movement needs to choose its battles. And how do you get at something like corporations are getting bigger? Like, that's not a realistic antitrust well, law. Yeah. yeah. And, like, I feel that there's a tendency sometimes to say this group's bad. Right. One and, other and interesting. So how do you how do you sort of hone in your yeah. your approach to get it in a meaningful way instead right. of saying, I mean, I I sat next to someone from Safeway at dinner who's like, I someone at the table said, "What's your favorite apple?" And this person was like, "What, green or red?" And this wow. was someone, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and this is someone who wor- worked at Safeway, not like at like in management in Safeway right. in Northern California was like, what, what are you talking about? So it's, it's lots of big companies. And I, I just think that there's a need to kind of define an agenda that goes a little deeper than, than big is bad, small is good. You know, how do you begin to get at those policies? One other piece of the Walmart puzzle, though, I think is the fact that they, keep wages very low. So there was some really interesting research done um, when they were, I don't actually know where it's at right now, but the there's, there was a large kind of movement to keep Walmart out of New York, and I think they're probably not doing so well at this point, but there were some really interesting numbers around wages of Walmart employees and how that was going to impact the communities, but also clearly impacts those people's ability to spend money on food afford food so it's there's like the the vicious cycle very much yeah i mean it is there is some irony in them presenting themselves as as the solution to problems that they contributed to by kind of you know helping drag down the wages in the united states 
Um, I'd recommend Tracy McMillan's book if yeah. you haven't read it yeah. on, on, on these kinds of, of issues. Um, I want to move away from this just a little bit so it doesn't, it's too easy of a demon to, to pick on. I want to um, wanna ask you, your guys' opinion about what I'll call behavior modifications attempts, things like the soda ban in New York or this fork that tells you when you've eaten too much and, and various other attempts to change people. It exists. <laughs> so a lot of this has to do with attitudinal change, but also behavior change, uh, even though our uh, sort of natural predisposition for liking sugar and salt. Uh, what's your guys' take on these attempts? Do you think they're working, not working? Have you seen one that is working better than another one? And, and is that a valuable tool in, in all of this? I know it's a little bit outside the ether, but it's, it's super interesting to me because so much of this is, you know, the average person, they're just going shopping. They're not thinking about all of these issues. So, so how can you get them to change their behavior or their ideas about what they should be eating? Um, well, I... Um, I'm a, I think I'm a little bit more skeptical of them than a lot of people are, the sort of uh, soda tax and things like that. Because I, uh, you know, food is such a personal thing, and I am much more comfortable um, going after corporations and policymakers for sort of setting the parameters than I am for individuals that are sort of faced with this stuff. And, um, and I could support something like a soda tax, for example. I mean, you know, consumption taxes fall hardest on the people that, that, that make the, le the least money. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't get super excited about soda taxes. But if there could be a way of, I mean, the way, the way that I think the easiest lever, I think, for, um, for behavior modification to me is that we've got this captive audience of millions that we're feeding every day in the school system. And what we're training them in the school system, even now with these recent reforms, is that, and especially the people that are really captive to it, that don't have other options, that aren't eating off campus or bringing their own lunch or whatever, uh, what we're teaching them in the school system is that this shit food is, that this is how you eat. And you eat in 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. You know, we've seen the, the time people are able to, to spend eating lunch in schools shrink under pressure from budget cuts and whatnot. Um, you know, even after the school lunch bill um, that passed a couple years ago, um, cafeterias have something like 30 or 40 cents a day, and I'm not exaggerating, to spend on ingredients. And, and so under those constraints, the, the companies that are able to meet the nutritional requirements under those constraints are, tend to be these big companies like Tyson, uh, places like that, or these big cafeteria food service firms and that is a, a tool of a behavior modification that I would like to see in play so maybe if you I mean I think that you need to take soda out of uh, out of out of schools the reason why it's in schools is because when they they uh, started to cut the uh, lunch budgets and stop investing in uh, infrastructure for cafeterias the schools needed a way to make money to basically subsidize the lunches so they put these uh machines in um, and so taking them out is complicated but I think it needs to happen but if it, we could have a, uh, a soda tax that then got sh uh, funneled into the school lunch program so there's at least a carrot along with that stick um, that would start to be something that, that I would support and you know the other thing is that we found that these interventions like school lunch 
you can't just throw healthy food on the plate and and uh, and hope the kids eat it. You you I think you research shows that you need stuff like garden programs and cooking classes, and uh, you know we everything we do in school we're, we're teaching like we're teaching sort of the, our society's vision of what that thing should be, and to turn around school lunches from this you know dismal vision of industrial, gross, flavorless uh, food to something more robust, I think would, I mean, that, that's a leader point that, that I think I can get around. And so punitive taxes on junk food, I, I wish could be routed in that direction. If I ruled the world, that would be <laughs> yeah. and, and so it's more than just investing more in lunch, but also programs around lunch, I think. Well, I think, I, I think the school lunch program could learn a lot from, you know, say a Google that's got hierarchies of healthy food and all that sort of thing, but also companies like that that incentivize workers for doing other things. You know, if if you don't drive to work, you get a discount on your health insurance premium. If you take alternative transit, you get, like, all these sort of, not for small children, but, you know, for adults, too, and sort of incentivize good behavior. does seem to be working in certain instances, and uh, Americans are you know, very adverse to having anyone sort of control their behavior, but there's countries, which I'm sure you've all heard, where they sort of measure people's waistlines and, and sort of incentivize based on that. So we haven't gone as far as other places, but it does seem there's there are things that you can do. Jason, have you seen things that, that work? Well, I mean, I will say, I immediately flashed on, like, my first reaction when, you know, they when, when Bloom, Mayor Bloomberg in New York floated his proposal for, you know, restricting serving sizes around... Um, you know, around beverages, I was my 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 first reaction was I don't really like that. It was something that felt it felt a little, just a little bit kind of food big brother to me. I, I ended up actually having my mind changed on that um, and and seeing how it could work. I do think a better idea is is to have taxes that are that are sort of vice taxes essentially, um, so that we're discouraging things that we don't like, and we're also kind of taking into account the negative externalities, right, of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, um, of all these things that come along with that. I mean, I guess i just echo what, what Tom said. It's how do we encourage um, the flip side of, of that? And, and, you know, one, one way of, um, you know, sort of changing people's behavior is, is through different signals just kind of in the market. And there's, you know, that great scene in Food, Inc. where they sort of price out, like, you know, how much money... Um, and this is old news to most people in this this room, but you know, um, it's a rational choice to buy junk food compared to healthy foods. When you look at how much it costs, you know, per calorie, what you're spending, say for that 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 you know, um, crown of broccoli versus the junk food. So how do we, what can we do again? And this gets back to what Twilight was saying: how individual choice is not enough. How do we shift some of our national food and farming policies, our ag policies, so that? Um, healthy foods and, and fruits and vegetables and whole grains are more economical, right? Um, again, looking at how, you know, most of the stuff that we, again, grow here in California, not dairy, but, you know, fruits and vegetables, those are considered specialty crops um, by the USDA. Um, and really looking at USDA policies and, and changing um, what we're supporting and what we're not supporting. I agree with a lot of what they have said. Um, I was just thinking about how in the East Bay where I live, it's been, I think, six weeks since they started charging a $0.05 fee for paper bags. There's no longer plastic bags. $0.10? cents. sorry. I haven't actually had to pay yet. Um, In that time, in that six-week period, we've gone from, as usual, normal behavior, everyone gets bags, to 
the other day I was in a grocery store and I bought a fair amount of stuff and I had forgotten a bag and the, the teller actually, or not the teller, the cashier actually picked up all the stuff and handed it to me. She didn't even <laughs> ask me if I wanted a bag. And six months ago, that would have been my dream. I do that all the time. I just pick things up and everyone looks at me kind of weird. And this time the woman was actually handing it to me. So this is just to say that these things do often work. Um, and I, you know, the public health numbers are there for a lot of these, these, you know, nanny state ideas. Um, whether or not we should really be putting so much heat into the discussion is another question. Um, but I also think there's a lot of there's a lot of industry lobbying behind that heat, and that's where it gets interesting is to kind of dig into like, you know, why. Why is there so much media attention to these issues? It's not just that people want their soda. It's that, you know, PepsiCo and Enco is really putting a lot of time and energy into making sure that we continue talking about the size of our sodas and not a lot of these other issues. That certainly happened in Richmond, California. Yeah. I met once with, I don't believe he's there anymore, but Derek Yak from the World Health Organization, uh, Worked for Pepsi, and I asked him, you know, are you gonna are you gonna change are you gonna change what's what's happening? And he said, he claimed that Pepsi has tried to reduce sugar content, and that both the sugar lobby and the consumers won't accept it. And that's sort of, you know, that's that's sort of their line. And and they have a sort of inspirational CEO, and she, I think, she went into that company deciding that she wanted to make change, and that the obstacles are are so great and and uh, doesn't excuse any of it but it's it's complex i want to switch gears uh there was a great uh q a with michael pollan in the new issue of lucky peach i think it just came out maybe a couple days ago uh and one of the questions they ask him uh is the way we're eating going to lead to the end of the world and jason you got to some of these questions at the beginning uh having just come from a climate change real, uh, rally and i don't know how closely that's equated in the average brain right now that, oh, this is going to affect our food supply. And so maybe you could start with that. that question. Well, it's not helping. Um, it's definitely going <laughs> to contribute to the end of the world. I mean, the, the main thing being, um, I think, just the, the amount of uh, land we're using on a, on a global scale, right, to feed animals. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it's pretty clear that um, we can't have 9 billion people eating a, a North American um, diet, just with the amount of the amount of meat that's in our diet. Um, I'm not a vegetarian. I'll, I'll say that, but um, you know, I'm definitely very conscious about the meat I eat, where it comes from, and try to eat lower on on the on the food chain as much as possible. And um, that's something we we all need to do. I think it's been really impressive to watch the kind of viral force of the Meatless Monday mm -hmm. um, campaign. I was at a, a like a bar pub restaurant in in D.C. that was a pretty kind of unremarkable place, and they had a poster up. Um, saying, like, come to our chef's Meatless Monday thing. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool that this, you know, really just kind of corner pub place has a, a Meatless Monday thing. So, um, yes, the, the amount of land we're using to feed animals in general, um, some of the inefficiencies of our food practices, um, especially how much food is wasted. Recent um, Natural Resources Defense Council report, NRDC report, was looking at all the, um, the huge amount of food we're wasting. Just think of all the lost energy that, that goes into that. So... Forty um, percent. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. we need to find ways to farm smarter, to have smarter distribution channels, um, to eat lower on the food chain. Because if we don't, um, yeah, just the, the 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 resource footprint of all that is incredible. Um, 
again, from everything from the embedded oil and energy that goes into to, to food production distribution to, you know, just the methane emissions from, from our animals. So yeah, that issue, the, the issue of lucky peaches on the apocalypse and <laughs> how you will prepare for it, eat through it, and um, sort of brings a lot of like strange bedfellows. Like, um, if you've seen any of those survivalist seed kits that you can get, yeah. which yes. is just such a strange, you know, you and I, we want the same things. You know, you're in a bunker with your gun, and I'm you know, yeah, growing stuff in my backyard. But we both, you know. But that reminds me. That I did saving. pick up that. I, don't, I didn't read it, but there's a there's an also interesting article in that Lucky Peach edition by a great um, New York uh, based freelance uh, writer named Sarah Laskow, who kind of digs into the the really great work of Wes Jackson and folks at, at the Land Institute. And you know, Wes Jackson is trying to breed, has been trying to breed for for you know decades now um, through traditional plant breeding techniques, a perennial a perennial wheat, um, which he's calling Kernza. Um, and if and when Wes and, and his fellow plant breeders there, you know, crack the code on that, that's going to be huge um, to find a way that we're not having, you know, Wes uses like really biblical terms, you know, we've sort of fallen from, you know, <laughs> from in, in sin by, uh, you know, agriculture. Uh, yeah, agriculture is like the original sin um, of Adam and Eve. But he's not wrong, right, in some ways, is that, you know, this constant sort of tillage of the earth, which, again, is so resource-intensive, and, and if we are able to develop a perennial wheat, and from there, you know, perennial rice or other grains, um, that would be, a that would be you know, like an epic, you know, kind of geologic-scale game-changer. And that's, um, I'm going to move around instead of having everyone do it, because that gets into the question of, of Prop 37 GMOs a bit, because he's trying to, obviously a little bit different uh, growing a, a wheat alternative, but one of the things Michael Pollan talks about is, is developing a meat substitute. Um, so as people sort of go down this path of developing food alternatives, they're obviously going to find various ways to do that. So, um, Tom, maybe you can relate that a bit to Prop 37 and GMOs and food labeling and sort of where you see that debate headed. Oh, oh um, well, I think that Jason wrote a great thing on it right after it happened. Uh, people are familiar with Prop, Prop 37 and how it was leading in the polls dramatically, and then it, millions of dollars came in from the biotech and big, and big food, kind of both uh, the biotech seed companies and also Coca-Cola's, PepsiCo's, and uh, large food processors came in and defeated it. And I think a lot of people, you know, Paul and himself did a New York Times Magazine piece before it came out saying that this is sort of a... Uh, a test of the food movement. This is to see if we really have a food movement and, and kind of made it into a, a test that if you looked at it that way, it failed because so there's no food movement. But I actually think that analysis was wrong and that um, we don't know what's going to come of it. But it seems like that if you are interested in labeling, uh, the California uh, story is going to end up being a step forward in it. And there's two different developments. One is that the, uh, the Washington State, very much fired up by California, has a, um, a labeling initiative coming up in November. And um, I just was in Portland last week and talked to someone there active in that, um, in that movement. And they are very, um, they're, they're pretty confident. They're not 100% confident because they saw it happen before. But they had the California example to build from. And one of the critiques of what happened in California was that there was no ground game. In California, there was limited funding, obviously, on the yes side, and there was no sort of political organizing on the ground that, that happened. It was all kind of in the media, and they're, they're correcting that. And maybe some of the fundamentals are better in, uh, in Washington because 
Seattle um, makes up a bigger portion of the state uh, population-wise than some of the um, than sort of the Bay Area does here. Um, and uh, and so she seemed to be pretty confident uh, that it had a, at least a chance to win, kind of fired up by Cal- the California example. And then the second thing that is significant is it looks like, so this coalition of the biotech seed companies really, this is their business model. They need this stuff that that farmers are growing in, you know, corn and soy and cotton to be okay with consumers, or at least for consumers not to know about them. That, that's They absolutely need that or, or they can't function. Whereas the food companies are buyers of these ingredients. They don't really care. They just want the cheapest thing that they can get into the, into the products that consumers will accept. They're already operating in a labeling environment in Europe. The same companies, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, are all huge in Europe. And they, um, there was an article in Grist, I think when Twilight was still there maybe, by, by Laskaway, Tom Laskaway, uh, talking about this meeting where the, the big food companies got together and said, basically, we're not gonna, we are thinking about not opposing labeling going forward. That this isn't really our fight, which would isolate the big biotech companies and, you know, probably take 30 or 40% of the, the money coming in to, to stop it off the table, although biotech could easily make that money up. They have very deep pockets. But um, so I think that um, I think that I, I'm not sure if your question was, what, where do I think labeling is going or do I think labeling is it was a good too, thing? It was too big a question. I'll, I'll maybe pose yeah. the, the, the last bit to you, Twilight, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Um, I think the fact that there's people working on a perennial wheat, but then there's also people working on making meat out of a test tube. There's all sorts of okay. different angles to come at food alternatives. Right. Um, what are, I guess, Twilight, some of the better ones that you've seen maybe or some of the more insidious? Like what, what's, what makes sense and what feels, what feels comfortable, what doesn't feel comfortable? Um, um, so it sounds like you're talking about the schmeat, the, <laughs> the meat that they're growing on sheep. I just like the names of all <clears> these schmeat. Which... Apparently, uh, Humane Society and PETA are behind because it would be a humane way to produce animal protein. Interesting alliances are Um, formed. Yeah, yeah. so that's pretty fascinating. (laughs) Um, I was at a a business a business school panel recently where a number of students were putting together million dollar proposals for this prize. That was, I think it was, how are you going to solve the global food? crisis with a million dollars. And I realized it was a good opportunity for me to push for the projects that I want to see happen. <laughs> so the things that I want to see happen are someone to put money, business money into perennializing grain, like actually someone to compete with West, Jack- West Jackson possibly or to, to help him or to, you know, to get on that fight. I want to see business try that. Why not? There's a lot of business money out there in the sustainable food kind of circle right now. Yeah, and Um, we have enough apps. Yeah, so (laughs) I wanted to see that. I wanted to see more business money going into, we haven't talked about this yet, but small-scale meat infrastructure, which is severely lacking in America. Um, I wrote to Anya Fernald the other day because I was working on a piece about uh, a man who goes to farms and um, does on-farm slaughter in New Zealand, and I, I know it's an issue that comes up here occasionally, that's a, there's a legal loophole, you can do it. Um, and I was like, so give me a, a global perspective on this, Anya. She runs Belcampo now, and she knows a lot about meat. And she was like, you know, in Europe, there are similar legal loopholes, but they don't really need them. There are small-scale 
there's small-scale meat infrastructure in a different way. And I was like, oh, okay. So that, to me, is something that people could really be putting money behind here. Um, and then the third thing that I'm a little bit obsessed with is, um, and I don't see a lot of money going into this either, but I think there should be, and it's uh, aquaculture that brings in multiple species and in particular focuses on seaweed. I think there could be a lot of money on that. in that. I think it could really change the face of seafood. If you grow fish with things like mussels, oysters, I know Tom's written about this. Um, I was just talking to a guy who does it in the Long Island Sound, and he has, has a company called Thimble Island, and he started out in this area that was just foul, I mean, relatively foul, and he wasn't actually selling much of what he was growing at first because he was a little worried about the water quality, and in the last year and a half, I think he said that he's been doing this, he grows these long kind of strain, like, they're like ropes that he grows um, oysters and mussels and scallops, and he grows seaweed on it, and he said in the last year and a half, the whole area has just, like, filled with amazing populations of fish and seahorses and all these things he's never seen in the Long Island Sound, and I'm thinking, there's one of you. <laughs> there's <laughs> one guy. There's, I mean, there's more than one, but, you know, yeah. there's one of him in the Long Island Sound. Like, why is there not... Why doesn't he have, like, an amazing amount of competition? People who are out there... He put it on Kickstarter, like everyone else. <laughs> right. Um, so those are three things that I really want to see. If the business world is thinking about sustainable food, that's where I want to see them put it. And I just want to add to that excellent answer that, um, that something like Schmeet or fake meat this is a this is like a, a sort of product substitution idea this is an idea that you know americans eat half a pound of meat a day how can we how can we sustain that how can we keep that going how can we keep that system going and so then you're going to produce a half a pound of meat a day in vats with chemicals has anyone thought about what the implications of that are what possible waste streams are created what kind of resources what kind of energy resources go into it and these are questions why it's still $10,000 a pound to produce, right? I mean, they're still, they haven't figured it out. And what Twilight is talking about is, I think, way more interesting and also way harder to get venture capitalists or something involved with because these are what this multi-species polytrophic fishing she's talking about is a, is a system. And it's an idea, it's like sort of taking advantage of ecological leverage the waste product from one species feeds another yeah, species thinking about things as a cycle as a cycle and um and the thing about it is that it uh it's, an, it's what we call appropriate technology and the technology is not something that you can patent it's not something that's sold in a bag that can be that a farmer has to buy and i think these are the really interesting solutions to how how, how to quote unquote feed the world and they're also the hardest ones to push out and, um, and get funding for. And so that's the thing we have to think about is that I think when you start thinking about how to, how to replicate products, you, you go sort of down, a, uh, down this sort of cycle of destruction that's leading to the end of the world, to put it in Lucky Peaches kind of <laughs> childish terms, uh, which I actually love that magazine. But, uh, but, but thinking of, of systems and ecological leverages and advantages that we could take, take advantage of, I think, are way more interesting. So thank you for your answer. <laughs> There's uh, an awesome film that my uncle, who's 
lives in New York has on video. It's called Humanoids from the Deep, and it's about an evil corporation that put something in the water to fatten up the salmon. Right. And then the salmon emerge from the water looking like um, sort of from uh, the blue people. What's that movie? Avatar. Avatar. <laughs> and yeah, shows like the evil, you know, the evil of the food system. This not is decades. so different than, than what they're doing with, with the GE salmon. Yeah, they're, yeah. Exactly. they're mixing it with something that makes it grow twice as fast in winter. Yeah, so this is this movie's like 30 years old. I'd highly recommend it. It's a great <laughs> parable for the food movement. Um, I'm going to open it up to uh, questions. Anybody? That hand? Um, yeah. I That sounds to me more or less, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it, so I don't really know, but I mean, it, it sounds mostly like appropriate technology. I mean, the, the one sort of greenhouse thing we certainly need in the USDA is finally getting on board with this is just basic season extension technologies, things as simple as hoop houses um, that are really crucial, you know, in California at health, but I mean, like, really make or break in, in places like Maine or, or Michigan or colder parts of the country. Um, and by extending your season like that, then you can reduce the fact that, yeah, you have to you know, truck all these fruits and vegetables from California or Arizona or during this part of the year, Mexico or Guatemala, you know, halfway around the country. Um, the one thing I kind of thought of when you said six million additional acres, because, you know, <coughs> on a global scale, people are like, organic can never feed the world, um, which is true if you're looking at it through your sort of current paradigm and lens of how many farmers we have. Um, but if you look at all sorts of different studies, organic, certainly, you know, over time, if you build up soil and you build up soil life, um, can, can, can match the yields of industrial agriculture, but it requires more people. And I think that's a virtue. Um, I think we need more farmers. I think we need more people involved in, in agriculture. Um, and so it's, it's not necessarily a land issue so much as it's a labor issue. Um, and... And again, people, are, you know, the, the, the idea is, well, we want to get away from the land. But um, I don't know. I think the fact that organic agriculture requires more people, requires more human attention, um, is a good thing. It would, it could be, you know, a job provider um, for people who wanted to go into that. So it doesn't seem to me like our, our problem is technology or land. Our, our problem is that we've got too few people actually working the land. crappy wages <laughs> <laughs> yes um, in the back there yeah. um, kind of going off what you said um, what, what is the kind of why do you guys a lot of our <laughs> I've noticed is 
vertical space. So how is it necessarily um, worthwhile for us to talk about these small community plant-based gardens and not talk about things like vertical farms um, that can actually scale um, things to an industrial level and provide kind of, you know, jobs? I mean, there is an ample supply of labor Um, I'll jump in real quick and let one of you go. I've been sent any number of, of vertical garden projects over the last, I don't know, five, six years, and have yet to see one that actually panned out. I don't know if people have had different experience. It, it seems to me it's, it's often included in utopic architectural schemes and, and stuff like that, but I haven't actually seen it scale um, There's I, one that pe everyone points to. I think it's in Singapore. Singapore. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's there's a project in Chicago that they're calling that. Mm -hmm. But if you really look at it, I think it's more just an old building that they've renovated with a bunch of um, indoor, you know, probably like heavy life cycle greenhouse spaces. Mm -hmm. But they are calling it vertical because it's in a tall building. Um, yeah, have you guys seen any... I've heard the Singapore thing. I'm not sure it has. There's a guy, the guy who's uh, been a bunch of this name, Dick Desson Disponier. Dixon Disponier. Dixon Disponier. Um, and there's been a little bit of people kind of crunching his numbers. I think the number one reason why that won't work um, or why it's problematic is the figure eight pounds. Eight pounds is how much a gallon of water weighs. Um, and the embedded energy of moving um, what's going to be thousands of gallons of water to the 40th story at a certain way doesn't pencil out and also I think it's if you can if you can find a way to do most of the cultivation on the skin of the building maybe it makes sense but then once you start moving inside and you need lights um, then you're paying for something that's normally free so you have to pay for the energy to I mean every time I hear about like urban indoor farming schemes I think well the only indoor farmers I really know of <laughs> um, are making about $400 or so you know per or, or, or they're product. making a lot more to, than that yeah, and they're growing so, I mean, something else yeah I don't even know so you know and like you're, you're going to charge a lot for your strawberries yeah. um, to make it because again you're paying for the light which is yeah. normally free some, someone yeah. got busted south of market today for having a, a pot farm, and the neighbor said he kept buying us Starbucks cards to keep us from telling on him. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think, I mean, you, sorry, I can't see the person who asked the question, but you used the word industrial, and I think it's true. You probably can scale uh, vertical farming up to an industrial level. Um, I, I personally am spending a lot of my time kind of critiquing the industrial model. And so I feel like what's kind of confusing about the vertical farm um, mag magic, and it's definitely there, you know, I see a lot of the, the, um, the rendering <laughs> going on. And oh, architects love it. Yeah, it, it's appealing. It's absolutely, you know, who doesn't want like a fancy tall green thing in your city? Um, but 
you would still have a lot of the same problems, I think, of industrial agriculture and in that you wouldn't be thinking like a cycle. And you, you may have labor, but you still probably won't have people who want to pay for that food in such a way that, that that labor is really valued. So those are some of the big questions that it leaves me with. Right there. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great question. The question is, what can, what role can co-ops play, both in the in urban communities and also in farm communities? And I think that's a great, great question. And I think that we've seen that it it really it, it can work. It's you know the the cooperative model is based based on the idea of. In, in retail terms, communities uh, coming together with their buying power and um, and and buying things in bulk and and bringing them in and sort of uh, instead of having uh, inviting Walmart in to sort out your um, your, your food desert, uh, have this the, the solution coming from within the community. And you know, one thing I was just talking to Brahma Mahdi, who's an activist here in um, in Oakland, who's working on getting a, a grocery store in West Oakland and. One of the things that that he, that he was telling me that that makes a lot of sense is that inviting in uh, a Walmart <laughs> or a big uh, a big grocery chain in, into these communities could be great if they can bring um, they can at least bring you know inexpensive vegetables in. But uh, it turns out that they don't they don't stick around. The reason why food deserts exist is that uh, big grocery chains left the neighborhood and they left the neighborhood because. They decided that the profit margins weren't high enough, and uh, and you know he said he actually I haven't um, been able to I just got an email from him but I haven't been able to click on the links but he sent me a article showing how um, how basically companies will will come in for tax breaks they'll be profitable as long as they get their tax breaks the tax breaks dry up their margins disappear and they leave and that's that's what happens over and over and over again and the cooperative model has a chance to be a lot more uh, robust. And obviously community-centered. And, you know, of course, running retail operations is very tricky, and um, it takes a lot of management, and it's not a simple solution. But I can think of of co-ops that... that, I can think of one co-op, and you guys might laugh at me when I say it, because it's a Park Slope food co-op, which is in Park Slope, New York. And that's obviously a very... uh, It's been a pretty well-to-do neighborhood for a while, but when you go... I was a member for a few years, and when you go in there, it's this amazing economic cross-section. It's the most diverse place that I have been to in within Park Slope. People from all different neighborhoods and economic uh, uh, stations in, in New York. And the way that it works is the prices are legitimately lower than anywhere else you can go, whether it's Whole Foods or the little independent natural foods market around the corner. And that's because they, uh, the members do most of the, of the work. And, and that's a trade-off. There's not as many... Uh, full-time jobs from that kind of thing as well but it's creating this price point that makes shopping there for people who really really care about what, what you know who have the privilege of really thinking about what goes in their body and care about it can get access to these products for a lot cheaper by putting in this uh, sweat equity and um, and I think that you know it, the same has been true uh, there would be fewer far as we lost uh, millions of farmers uh, between the 30s and today in the United States 
and there would be far fewer if uh, in the early in the late 19th century and early 20th century uh, farmers didn't band together. Consolidation is not new, and uh, if farmers didn't band together and form cooperatives, buying cooperatives for buying inputs, uh, for selling, for getting a decent price. And a lot of those cooperatives got corrupted over the years and are now folded into industrial agriculture. But I think that the idea of farmers banding together and buying in inputs together and banding their produce together and selling it at a price that works for them is absolutely critical. So, yes. They got really big, and they got really established, and they, they basically... They basically just got sort of sucked into. I mean, the most notorious example is the uh, the dairy industry, and the the, the dairy farmers cooperative, which which came, which was absolutely necessary when it started, but it's basically basically become. You know, let's just say very closely linked to Dean Foods, which is the the biggest uh, the biggest buyer of milk. Uh, buys about a third of milk in the United States, and also is the biggest buyer of it's the biggest buyer and processor of organic milk. Arise is their brand, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, back there. Shout out to the Minneapolis co-ops too quickly. Sorry. They're like amazing. I, I wish that were true, but I, st I still think there's a lot of people who would go the McDonald's route. Um, I think there's been really interesting research done on, on so how hardwired everyone is for salt and sweet. And so I think that I, every time I drive to Los Angeles, I wish there was a healthy food alternative next to the McDonald's and don't go into the McDonald's. But uh, That was a great example of the classic Bay Area <laughs> que you know, statement in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think we should just recognize that urban farming is never going to feed us. And that's not the intention of – we don't have cities to, to, to grow food in them. I mean, cities are places, you know, centers for culture and art um, and, and learning. They, they have been, you know, for thousands of years. And we're not going to grow – uh, wheat in, in Golden Gate Park or, or you know, rice on Moffat Field or something. I mean, that's just not... Until um, the apocalypse. And, and <laughs> until the apocalypse comes, right. Um, I still do think urban farming is really valuable for a number... I mean, the most, I think, obvious benefit of what we're doing in urban farming is is really educational. That sounds a little squishy, a little subjective, um, 
but I think urban farming is sort of like one of the gateway drugs for the sustainable food movement. It kind of gets people hooked. They see it. They get excited. Um, it's this it's this kind of visceral experience. That said, um, and and you should definitely talk to Eli Zigas, who's in the back of the room there, if you want to go deep on urban farming as potential. Um, but one of the things that I think urban farming can do, especially if we have more backyard food cultivation. Um, you know, everybody likes to talk about the Victory Gardens program, which by, you know, the end of World War II, we were supposedly growing about 40% of our own fruits and vegetables, backyard gardeners were. Um, if we were to hit that today, and there's also quite a bit of room for backyard, you know, chicken cultivation. Who here's got a backyard poultry flock? Okay, two of us. That's pretty good. So there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> um, um Backyard small-scale poultry flocks um, and beekeeping, and even if your backyard were to accommodate it, um, maybe goats. That kind of thing, again, gets into this sort of idea of having a polyculture of food, of looking at we need all sorts of different food producers. And if you have that, that is kind of also a cure, I think, a little bit to the, the concentration, the consolidation in the food system. Um, just by having... A, a greater number of producers involved, it, it does in a way sort of take the pressure off um, other producers to you know have that concentration. But yeah, given that the the the, the median home price in San Francisco is seven hundred eighty thousand dollars, we're not gonna we're not gonna be taking a lot of parcels you know out of out of the real estate market um, and using them to grow food. I think the bigger actually, and, and also talking on this point, the the bigger opportunity is more in suburban or peri-urban farming. And there's really amazing models for that in other places in the world. I saw it actually in Japan, in Greater Tokyo. You don't get that far out of Greater Tokyo. And there's still these like literally ancient vegetable gardens and even some rice plots. And there's folks in there, it's like their favorite thing is the, is the push-behind rototiller. And you see these little plots, and the, the, this, you know, there's some old guy out there with his push-behind rototiller, and he's got a plot that's maybe twice the size of this room, so I don't know what it is. It's, like, you know, it's maybe like 3,000 square feet or something, and that's, like, and that's in Japan, right? That's like the future. Um, and <laughs> that's, what, that's what Japan feels. Well, it's on the bullet train, so it's not like the future. Um, and, and so there's so much. I'm looking at that map there, the Bay Area. So it's not going to be in San Francisco. It's, it's going to be in... Walnut Brentwood, yeah. <laughs> Brentwood should turn and, back into yeah. farming. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, the developments there didn't do so well. Um, it's a. I think it'd be an awesome opportunity. Yeah, and with the foreclosure, I mean, you hate to kind of be like vulture on the foreclosure crisis, but I, I think it's it's not going to be in in San Francisco. It's going to be in Walnut Creek and Concord and these places where you can actually start to start to kind of parcel together a constellation. Stockton went of bankrupt. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Stockton. Stockton. They went and, bankrupt. And was a farming community. And I just want to jump in and, and say that um, that I think there's a myth that agriculture happened and there's this big food surplus and that led to cities. But when I looked at the question a couple of years ago, it turns out that agriculture and cities really co-evolved. And so agriculture is always, and Jason's exactly right that on the limitations of uh, urban ag, but ag and cities always co- co-evolved. And, and then you got sort of... Uh, you got you always had sort of uh, intensive vegetable production maybe happening in, in spots in cities, and as you got into rings around cities, you got you got more intensive, I mean more expansive agriculture, and that's really the model that, that he's just talking about. That sort of uh, relocalizing it on a regional scale. I'm not saying that San Francisco's got to pr- produce 40 percent of its vegetables, but looking at the whole region, and it, it's a very natural. It's the way cities have been for a long time. 
up until about the 19th century. New York, milk consumed in New York City was, was, uh, was grown in New York City, sometimes under filthy conditions, in the, in the 19th century. So this is, it's, we're in a, in a bubble where it seems exotic and weird that food w- would be grown in cities, is what I think. Okay, one more. Oh, right there. Thank you. you just kind of answered your question really well (laughs) and I think you make some great points um yeah I mean I've been really heartened by all the great women who I've met in the sustainable food movement I mean in this city especially like and some of them are in this room so I I resonate with a lot of what you're saying um I also yeah I wonder um I wonder how many women are involved that we don't see. That's a big piece of it. Um, I mean, I was in this interesting meeting a couple years ago where some people were talking about how many women get on um, are on farm leases so that the USDA, so that they get money for gender parity, even though their husbands may run the farms, which I thought was a pretty fascinating fact. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think to a pretty large degree women have... Um, have moved in other directions. If we, if we talk about like mainstream agriculture, I don't actually think there are a lot of women. I mean, there definitely weren't very many in that Chevy ad, and that should tell us. Something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will preface my answer by saying I was invited to be on an architecture panel called Women in Green, and I wore green. I tend, and that was how I was a woman in green. I, I tend to shy away from making those sort of black and white gender distinctions. I think that any industry or endeavor benefits from gender parity, so I'll say that much. I also think uh, becoming a mother uh, only expands one's 
outlook and appreciation for the importance of these issues, but I think that's true for becoming a father also. Uh, but that's what I, I will say that um, I think women have made invaluable contributions to the food movement, but I don't know how much we gain from saying that men do the corporate thing and women do the other thing. I, I, I don't know how productive that ultimately um, is for the conversation, but then that's just for my desire to not turn these into binary situations or create new um, dilemmas where there already seem to be so many. <laughs> so, fair enough. Um, I want to thank all of my panelists, um, male and female alike, and all of you for coming. Thank you. <laughs>